Well, it is a delight and a joy to be here, see some of your faces uh, familiar to me, others that are new to me, some of whom are new to you. Uh, but we're, it's a delight to be here uh, to worship God with you. And I do bring you greetings from Trinity Baptist Church, a long-standing uh, friendship between our churches, uh, going back to Pastor Austin Walker's time in the United States and meeting Pastor Martin. Uh, bring you greetings, and our prayers are often for you as well. Well, let's uh, once again seek the face of God before we come to his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're very conscious that we are those who are too closely associated with the dust, very needy, very poor. So we come to you with our need and our poverty. We come to you with our closeness to dust, to death, to suffering, to sorrow, and plead with you that you, by your grace, would meet us at the point of our need. Help me to preach your word. Help us to hear it. By your spirit, apply it to each heart for the good of our souls and ultimately for the glory of our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The scriptures use many different illustrations to describe the Christian life. We saw some of that from Psalm 113 this morning and some aspects of what it is, who we are in ourselves and, and what God has done in sending his son into this world. Another uh, illustration that's used in the scriptures is that of a, of a lengthy race, uh, a marathon race, if you will, a marathon steeplechase, if you, you can understand something of that. Imagine running 26.2 miles. I, I, I can't imagine it. Um, I've seen it. I know people who enjoy doing it. I don't. Uh, but think about that, and then think about doing it in such a way that you've constantly got these hindrances that are, that are, that are bothering you. You've got to go over a water trap. You've got to run through some sand. You've got to go over some other hurdle, and, and you've got these constant things that are bothering. Now imagine that you're going to run it in a suit, wingtip shoes. Maybe you even have an ankle weight that you've got to drag along. You're going to say, wait a minute, how in the world would I ever want to run such a race? Well, if you're a Christian, you're running just that kind of race. So turn with me to the passage we'll look at this evening, which uses that illustration. It's Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm, being that I'm American, I'm going to ask you to beg your difference, your pardon, as I use the New American Standard translation uh, for my text this evening. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
This, this, these verses contain several commands and directives with regard to the Christian life. And it, it speaks of this, this race that we're running. We're to lay aside every encumbrance, all those, as it were, even things which might be legitimate in many settings, but they need to be set aside if they're encumbrances and in particular, the sin which so easily entangles us. We're to set these things aside and we're to run with endurance. And the longer I'm in the Christian life, the harder I, I recognize that that is. And maybe it's because my legs are getting tireder and weaker and I'm just finding it the more and more difficult to run that last two-tenths of a mile at the end of the 26.2 miles. But we're to run with endurance. It says here that we are to consider him. And that's really what I want to do this evening is take that last command where it says, consider him, verse three, who has endured such hostility by sinners against him so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. I'm concerned and desirous that each one of you run with endurance and persevere to the end. And there's a particular motivation that's that's given here, a particular focus, and that is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now we need to know who that Jesus is so that we can fix our eyes on him properly. We need to understand exactly what he's done and who he is so that we will fix our eyes upon the right one. We're not just looking at the end of the race. It's not just look at the finish line. He says, look at the one who has run the race, who has finished the race. Keep your eyes on him. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who has given us faith. He is the one who has perfectly run the race of faith. He is the perfect example of running this race. And that's why what I'd really like to focus in, I'm just zooming in here on the one little section I want us to consider this evening, and that is this. The Jesus that we are to look at is the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I want to consider what I call resurrection joy. Because how do you go from a cross to sitting, around, sitting down on the throne? It's the resurrection. And so it's a joy associated with this resurrection. And that was something of what motivated the Lord Jesus as he went to the cross. Now, I'd like to spend some time examining what I think are three strands of resurrection joy. The first strand is a filly, it is a filial joy. That is the joy of a son. Second strand is a royal joy. It fits in rather nicely at this time. It's the joy of one going to the throne. And the thirdly, it is a mediatorial joy. It is the joy of one who is accomplishing his responsibilities as a priest. So look with me, first of all, or consider with me, first of all, the filial resurrection joy. The joy of the son who is going home. Now, I have three points under each of my three points, right? Three points under each of my three points. And it's real easy. Once you heard them the first time, you'll know what the same one is for each of the others. Who he is, what he endured, and why he endured it. Who he is what he endured, and why he endured it. The filial resurrection joy, who he is. He is the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews, who is seeking to encourage these brethren to persevere in the midst of very great difficulties and the temptation to go back, 
He's given them all kinds of ways to motivate them and encourage them to keep running with endurance. He here says, he comes to this point, he says, here's what I want you to do. Keep running with endurance, keeping your eyes on this one who had joy, joy in his heart, which motivated him as he faced the death. And that one whom he spoke of back in chapter one, if you look back there, is the, is, he's the son of God. He, he is greater than all the angels because he has the son of God. The writer of Hebrew highlights this paternal filial relationship between the first and second persons of the Godhead right at the beginning. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us. In his son. He goes on in verses four and five, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now I believe speaking, uh, if I would go back to the book of Acts, I don't have time to go through that. This begetting is actually a description of his giving to the throne. It's his resurrection and his exaltation. But nevertheless, it's speaking of the reality that he has a unique relationship. This is, you are my son. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The writer says, as we run this Christian race, we need to keep our eyes on the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father. John tells us that, The word was God, but he also tells us the word was with God. The son has always been the son with the father. And yet, what did he endure? For when we meet him uh, in the New Testament, we find him as one who has come into this world. What did he suffer? He suffered separation, rejection, desertion. There's a sense in which he suffered separation just coming into this world. There was was something uh, unique about the fact that he was never left the father as the eternal son, but yet he became man and dwelt among us. And if you you would, there there was something of of a disruption to the normal relationship and interaction that took place between them. And then dwelling among men, coming to his own, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They deserted him. His own father, his own, excuse me, his own disciples, followers at the end of his life deserted him. And even more than that, he suffered that horrific separation that took place on the cross. Those words which are are mind-bending, almost impossible to really grasp when, when God the Son hanging on the cross says to his father, Remember, he still knew him as father, for he says later, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what he endured. This is something of of the pain and the suffering that he endured. What would motivate him? This one who was the son of God had enjoyed eternal communion with the father, who endured this suffering and rejection and desertion when he came to this earth. Why did he endure it? It says in our text, for the joy that was set before him. A filial joy. He endured the cross because he knew the cross was the path home. 
on account of the fact that he knew that he had to fulfill his father's will and die upon the cross in order to get to heaven. Remember what he said to his disciples in the upper room? John 14 and verse 28. If you want to turn there, John 14 and verse 28. He highlights this reality of this filial going home. He says, you heard that I said to you. He's trying to encourage his disciples at this point. I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I'm going home. Now, I had the privilege of ministering in the Philippines back in 1992 for seven months. Made lots of close friendships. But coming to the end of that time, I said, I'm going home. There was a lot of tears on both sides. But the fact of the matter is, we were going home. And the joy and delight of going home. It used to be when I left home and I left my family behind, it was usually a week or so into my time away in the Philippines or some other place where I finally said, what am I thinking about? I left my family behind. Now I buy the tickets and I think, what am I thinking about? The depth of, of love and connection with my family, it, it's hard to break. But then what a joy to come back home. And now I've got these little ones called grandchildren. Papa, the joy of going home. It, it, we all know what it is. We've seen it in the, in the MIAs who are coming home, the, the, the men missing in action, the, the prisoners of war who are returning home. We see them grab their family. Well, this, that's nothing compared to God the Son returning to God the Father. Jesus said, I know the cross is the way home. But he knew that the way home required him to be rejected by the Jews, betrayed by Judas, deserted by his disciples, and crucified by the Romans. But on the other side was his father. Jesus knew that the cross was the way home, and Jesus was looking forward to seeing the father. And this filial joy enabled him to persevere, to endure the cross, and despise the shame. Second point is the royal resurrection joy. There's another strand to this uh, resurrection joy, and that's the royal part. It's the joy of a prince who is going to be crowned king. The joy of a prince who knew he was going to be to the throne to receive a crown and a reign. So who is he? Well, I've kind of I've highlighted that in my very point. He was the king of kings. But more than that, he's the messianic king. He was the king who was going to receive his crown as the promise that had been given to God's people for generations. He was the one who had come to deliver his people. Again, he is the preeminent one, the firstborn, chapter 1 and verse 6 of Hebrews. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Why? Because he is, it is of the Son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus was going to take his place on the throne with God his Father as the messianic king. The righteous scepter he was going to take of his kingdom. This was foretold right at the beginning of his coming into this world, to Mary. Remember what the angel said to Mary. The power of God will come upon you. He will be great. Excuse me. 
that he would be conceived in her womb and the power of God will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. He was the creator of all things. He was the king of kings and Lord of lords. He was the sovereign, but he came into this world that he might become and fulfill his role to become the messianic king. Psalm 24 describes him as the king of glory. Paul in the book of Corinthians describes him as the Lord of glory. In the book of Acts chapter 3, he's described as the prince of life. But what did he endure? Humility and shame. This one who had one moment, as it were, when people were praising him. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes. Right? This is the one, the king. David has arrived. And they're they're praising him and they're rejoicing at the fact. And yet, not very much later, they're, they're turning around him. Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels, quoting Psalm 8. He came to his own created world and his own people for whom he came rejected him. This one who was the king was humbled. He suffered humiliation. He he suffered shame. They hung him on the cross. They stripped him of all of his clothes and left him in utter humiliation. They regarded him as, while he was living, as nothing more than a carpenter's son from an insignificant man, from an insignificant town. This one who upheld all things by the word of his power, this one who was the God of gods and king of kings, was subject to the most demeaning treatment. Being slapped, spit upon, crown of thorns placed upon his head, a reed beating him. Hail, king of the Jews. Mocking him as he hung upon the cross. This is what he had. This is what he endured Humility, humbling, it's a humiliation, shame, humbling. But why did he endure it? Well, as our text tells us again, in part, he was motivated and moved by this reality, joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was before him? Well, as has commonly been said, frequently been said, the cross was the path and the cause of his crown and glory. He was going through the cross to the throne. This Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, who was for a time made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. We heard it in Philippians 2 this morning. And he was humbled for a time to the point of being a servant Not just being a a man, but becoming a a servant. And not just a servant, but a servant who was going to die. And not just a servant who was going to die, but a servant who was going to die in the lowest possible way, the worst possible way, as the worst kind of criminal to be hung upon a cross. 
This is how humbling his whole circumstances were. But he went through all that because on the other side of that cross was his messianic crown. He was going to be exalted above the angels. He was the one who was going to take his place and sit at God's right hand until he made all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Isaiah prophesied of this. Jesus knew this from reading the scriptures. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, Therefore, Jehovah speaking through his prophet about the Messiah, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. Jesus knew there was an exaltation that came after the suffering. And so the cross was the way to the throne. He looked ahead and joy said he could motivate him to suffer this pain, suffer this shame that he might get to his throne, which was promised him. But then that brings me to my third point. We've seen the filial joy, the joy of a son who's going home, a royal joy, and I resist making all kinds of connections with an upcoming coronation. You've heard some of those already in previous sermons. But that's nothing compared to the coronation of the Son of God sitting at God's right hand with all the angels praising But there was also this mediatorial resurrection joy. And there's a sense in which I think the writer of Hebrews is probably highlighting this most of all. It's the joy of a priest who has accomplished his task. Now, I call it a mediatorial joy because one of the primary responsibilities of a priest was to bring the people into the presence of God, bring their needs to God and their requests and their prayers and their sacrifices to God, but then also to be on God's behalf, bring grace and, and help to the people of God. So he acted as a mediator. And it's the joy of a mediator. What's the joy of a mediator? Well, it's when you actually accomplish reconciliation. You've got two parties who are, are at odds with one another. And, and as a pastor, it's one of the most challenging things I think I've had to face is to try to take two people who are at odds with one another or two groups that are at odds with one another and try to reconcile them. And I don't get a whole lot of joy generally oftentimes out of that because it doesn't always end where everybody's willing to repent of their sins and the reconciliation doesn't happen. But you see, Jesus in his mediatorial role as the high priest is going to accomplish the very thing he came to do. He is going to accomplish this reconciliation between an angry God and sinners who deserve his wrath. Well, I've told you then who he is. He is the great high priest, right? So my first point, who he he is. He's the great high priest. Now, the majority of the book of of Hebrews, chapters 3 through 10, emphasizes this reality and describes this reality in full. We read in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, of our confession. 
He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, who was in all his house. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now remember, he's writing to Jews who are tempted to go back to an old covenant religion. And he's writing to them saying, the one that you look up to, you know, you look up to Abraham and you look up to, to Moses. Well, I want to tell you that there's somebody who has more glory than Moses. Moses got the glory of being a servant in the house. Jesus gets the glory for being the son of the one who built the house. And he is a great high priest. You thought that Levi had a great priest, the high priest Aaron. He says, well, there was one even greater than that. And he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the great high priest. Forever, according to God's covenant, according to God's sworn oath, he is a, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. On and on in chapter 7, we read of this reality of how he's greater and better, has a greater covenant as this mediator. He has with better promises, a priesthood that is permanent, who he is. He's this great high priest who is perfectly suited to approach a holy God because he is holy harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He had to be, or he couldn't lay hold of God and in some way bring him and reconcile him to man. And yet he had to be fully man, and so he took to himself flesh that he might be associated with those who were men, Hebrews chapter 2. So that he could then grab a hold of the hand of man, as it were. Job talks about this, the mediator taking the hand of two parties and bringing them together. And that's the picture. It's this one who stands between God and man and can reconcile the two of them. Well, here is the perfect one to do that. But what did he endure? In order to do that, he had to live among sinful people. He had to come and dwell among sinners. This one who was perfect, without sin, had to suffer and in, the, in, in the constant company of those who needed to be sanctified. He came and became one of them, a, a brother, as it were, among them as a man. And in the days of his flesh, he suffered he, and he struggled and he, and he had prayers and supplications with loud crying. And as we see here, he suffered death. We see a high priest has to have a sacrifice, right? Well, this is, the, this is the marvelous thing about the Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest because his sacrifice is himself. And it's always a perfect sacrifice. But that meant that he had to die in order to fulfill his responsibilities. He had to lay down his life in order to fulfill his responsibilities of reconciling God and man. And so we read in Hebrews 7:27 how he did this once for all when he offered himself. When he offered up himself. And how much more will the blood of Christ through the, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, it writes in the writer states in Hebrews 9:14, without blemish to God. 
the blood, this blood of Christ can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But the most, the most mind numbing or mind, I I, I, I run out of words, mind blowing way to, to, to think about this is, is that he was a sacrifice that was actually a propitiation. Now, some people in churches today want us to use simple language and always use simple language. Well, I appreciate wanting to speak simply so everybody can understand. But don't lose some of these great words of the scriptures. Propitiation is an absolutely essential word to Christianity. It's a sacrifice that is offered to satisfy the wrath of another. People say, oh, that's horrible. That's, that's barbaric. No, no. You see, sin requires death. Death because of wrath. A crime has been committed. Wrath is due to sinners. And so that wrath has to be paid, has to be satisfied. And how do you propitiate a wrath? Well, you have to pay the price. And the sacrifice here, that is, the the price is death. The wages of sin is death. And so you have to have somebody who can satisfy the wrath of God for all the sinners of, of, the, of the world, all, me, all the sinners of his, his people had to satisfy the, God's wrath toward them. In order to do that, you have to have a perfect sacrifice to satisfy that wrath. You have to have a propitiation to propitiate, to appease the wrath of God. Hebrews 2, verse 17 Here's what Jesus endured. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or in Paul's words in Galatians 3, having become a curse for us. Or I think some of the most Challenging words for me to wrap my mind around are those in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, where it's speaking of Jesus, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what he endured. Not just the pain of death, not just the shame of human beings. He suffered the wrath of God due to every one of his people. He suffered separation from God. He suffered being humiliated in service to God. And now he suffers the very wrath of God. But there was joy that motivated him to do this. There was this mediatorial joy. Because you see, the path of obedience took him to the cross. And so to fulfill his role and to be obedient, he had to even die. We heard this in Philippians 2 this morning, Philippians 2 and verse 8. What did, why did he endure it? Well, because the cross was the path of obedience which would lead to the completion of his task. Paul tells us that Jesus being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look back with me, if you would. If you have your Bibles, look back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. 
Because the book begins with this note in Hebrews 1. Notice what it says. It starts off by pointing us to the Son right off of the bat. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And so this is all things are going to be his through whom he also made the world. All things were his because he made them. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's who we're talking about. That's the one we're talking about in, in the Jesus that we're to fix our eyes upon. This is the glorious one that we're to see the son of God, the king of kings. The high priest, the servant of God, this one who perfectly represents God in every way. But then notice what it says. When he had made purification for sins. How did he do that? By offering himself up under the wrath of God to take all that wrath that his people deserved. And he suffered all that wrath. And he accomplished his task. Because when he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we step back here for a minute. We know what it means for a son to sit down with his father. If you've ever sat down on the sofa or sat down in the chair next to your dad and puts his arm around you. We know that. We know if we've seen anything of the videos of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth or, or what we'll see in the days to come on all over the world when Charles sits down, as King Charles sits down on his throne. We understand that. But when does a priest sit down? Did ever a priest sit down? No, there were no chairs in the tabernacle. There were no chairs in the temple. There was no place for a priest to sit down. They couldn't sit down. And this is the main point. Writer of Hebrews says the the main point in what is said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 8.1. All other priests, it says in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. Every priest stands, and it's a perfect tense. He has been standing and he continues to stand, daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But he, that is speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why could he sit down? The final sacrifice was made. No other sacrifice has to be made anymore. No sacrifice for sin is needed anymore. He completed the task. He could now say, as he did on the cross, it is is finished. You know, I have seen people running marathons smiling. I have. But it's usually at the starting line and the finish line. (laughs) This is the smile of one who says, 
I'm finished. It is done. I've accomplished all that the Father has sent me to do. And so he, therefore, because of his willingness to suffer and his suffering on behalf of others, this righteous servant will justify many. One commentator said this, as at the creation, God exhibited satisfaction. So that when the, everything was done being created, God exhibited satisfaction. It is very good. So the servant sees the results of his shameful death and is abundantly satisfied. The suffering has been successful. His people are redeemed and justified. You see, it was because Jesus suffered death that he was crowned with glory and honor as the faithful son, as the glorious king, as the obedient high priest and servant so that he could bring many sons to glory. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, my friends, what some glorious things we can we've 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 seen. I have four applications, four lines of application, and I'll, and I'll seek to be brief. First, rejoice with Jesus. Let us rejoice with our God and our Savior. His separation is over. Over against the shame of being despised and rejected by his people, separated from his father, Jesus set this filial joy that the cross was the pathway to the father's home. And now the son is home. Rejoice. Rejoice that he who came into this world and was despised and treated as a criminal set this royal joy to face that shame and that, that pain. His humiliation is ended. He is now glorified, exalted, sitting at God's right hand. Let us rejoice. The king is on the throne. And let us rejoice. The high priest came to provide a way of reconciliation for sinners, came to pay the price for sin, came to satisfy the wrath of God, accomplished his task, and he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let us rejoice with Jesus. His endurance has been rewarded. His humiliation is ended. His suffering is over. But now, secondly, we should rejoice like Jesus. We should rejoice like Jesus in the midst of suffering. You see, this is the writer. He wants us to, he, he's giving us this primarily to motivate us to press on in difficulty, to persevere. And don't we have a filial joy? You see, because 
Jesus Christ came into this world to reconcile us, we who are enemies, and in Christ we are adopted sons. Remember what John said in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, excuse me, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're adopted sons in Christ Jesus. We're going home. And all the suffering that we go through is just part of the race to get to the end. That we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I love that picture of Jesus standing to receive Stephen. Now, I don't know that he'll stand to receive every one of us in that sense, but the picture was so graphic of here his servant suffering like he did, even to the point of death. And Jesus says, come home. Don't we have a royal resurrection joy? Because the scripture says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. If we endure with him, if we suffer, we shall also reign. He has made us a kingdom of priests and kings. We're, we're, we're seated already in the heavenlies in Christ. So brethren, let us rejoice. We have great things to look forward to. We will sit on thrones and judge the angels. I don't understand all that. But that's what the Bible tells us we have before us. I don't feel like a king. I don't feel... Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. It's a matter of what God says about us. Let that joy grip you as you face those sufferings and those trials of day-to-day life. And then be motivated as well by a mediatorial resurrection joy. Not, maybe I should change that to a servant's joy. Be faithful unto the end. As those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Be faithful unto the end and accomplish that for which God has put you into this world by being obedient unto him. But then, really, I think the primary application for us is this. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. It's slightly different than what I've just, what I've just said because maybe you're, you're here and, and you're feeling, you know, I, I feel so alone in this world. This world is getting so dark. This, this world despises Christianity so thoroughly. Um, and I'm just feeling like the outcast. I'm feeling fearful and, and, and separated and lonely. You have one who has already run the race and is home. And he has prayed, let them be with me where I am. And he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, even while we're here. He has said, you see, he's in heaven, but he's gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also, that we may be with him where he is. And so let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who has already accomplished this and returned home so that we don't need to be fearful about being separated because we'll be reunited. 
And then you might be thinking as we run this race, well, you know, I have so many enemies. So many enemies. (laughs) Enemies within. Enemies without. Enemies that seem to have no human mind behind them, just providences that just seem to hinder every step I try to take. And I just, it's, it just seems that it's impossible for me to make any progress. How in the world am I going to persevere? Keep your eyes on Jesus because you know where he's sitting? On the throne of heaven. He's the king. Nothing happens apart from his reign. Nothing, nothing. No trial, no hurdle, no pain, no sorrow has come except our king has ordered it and is directing it, and is reigning for us. Rest in him. He is, keep your eyes on him. Rejoice in the fact that he reigns over all of these things. And then thirdly, in terms of rejoicing in Jesus, as I have this third point about the the priest, I think one of the greatest things that hinders us and could cause us to stumble is the very thing that the writer of Hebrews highlights, the sins which so easily entangles. How will I ever make it to the end with so much sin and so many temptations? I can't do it. And maybe you're even sitting here with a guilty conscience today saying, you know what? I know how I've sinned against God even this day. Why would he receive me? Well, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus because he's already paid the price. He died upon the cross for those sins. His omniscience, he knew all those sins. He knew they would go back to him who sits at God's right hand, whose blood cleanses from all sin. Keep your eyes on him. Satan would want to get your eyes off this. Oh, but I'm so wicked. I'm so terrible. He could never receive me. He'll never take me in. No, 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 no. You see, brother, it's not your sister. It's not because of your perfection that you're going to make it there. It's because of the son who's already home, the king who reigns over all, and the priest who's fulfilled the role to wash away all your sins. He is bringing all of his sons All God's sons to glory. Not one will be lost. Keep your eyes on him. And then my final application is this. Don't reject this Jesus. If you reject Christianity, this is the Jesus you're rejecting. You're rejecting one who is the eternal son of God. Created all things holds all things. You're rejecting the one who is the glorious king who reigns over all. You're rejecting the one who was willing to leave the glories of heaven to come to earth and die for sinners. You're rejecting this one. Don't neglect this one. Don't minimize this one. Don't miss this one because you see he came into this world to save sinners he came to seek and to save that which was lost 
And he comes. Notice what the final exhortation that the writer of Hebrews said is there at the end of verse 3 in chapter 12. He says, why am I telling you this? Why do I want you to consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He wants us to be encouraged. But you see, the fact of the matter is, if you're rejecting this one, you're all alone. You are all alone. You're a rebel against the king. And you have no hope for your sins ever being forgiven. But Jesus, who came into this world, said this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, come unto me, all you who are good enough, as we heard this morning. Remember what, remember what we heard. You can't crawl off the dung heap. You can't climb out of the dung heap. And you can't clean yourself up good enough to get off the dung heap. Jesus Christ said, I've done it all. Come to me and be saved. Come to me. And there will be hope and joy not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. Go to him today. Don't wait. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who can describe things so glorious as what your son has done, who he is? We thank you for your word and plead with you that you would so work in us that we would Keep our eyes fixed upon him that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us. And if some have never entered that race, for whatever reason, would you blow away all of those false notions? Show them the glory of your son that they might flee to him today and know what it is to have a hope that will last beyond the grave. We plead this in Jesus' name.